Welcome and thanks for listening to the sermon podcast from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu. Prepare to be challenged today. First Pres Assistant Pastor Steve Page says, We often look to the wrong sources for our salvation. Hi everyone, my name is Steve Page. I'm one of the pastors on staff at First Pres, and it is my honor to bring the Word of God to you today. And by the way, when I was a kid, my favorite superhero was Zorro. That black mask, black cape, that was just too cool. Anyway, let me begin by sharing a famous and familiar quote by 19th century British politician, Lord Acton. He said this, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It conveys the idea that a person's, as a person's power increases, their moral senses diminishes. And sadly, human history is strewn with figures that underscore the truth of that claim. However, when I was a young missionary, I saw that the opposite was also true. That is, powerlessness has a tendency to corrupt as well. Let me explain what I mean. You see, when we feel powerless, we also fear, uh, feel fearful. And when fear starts to become overwhelming, we start to look to things and people, and especially powers, that can save us from that sense of powerlessness. Now, even, though, even if those powers contradict and corrupt our faith commitments, we still look to them. For example, for several years I lived and worked in Thailand. And if you ask 95% of the Thai people what faith they were committed to, they would immediately say Buddhism. And they wouldn't say Buddha and some other religion, it was just Buddhism. But you don't have to live very long in that country to see that they were also practicing quite regularly animism. Now, animism is a belief system that sees spirits animating all kinds of stuff in the rivers or forests or animals or rocks or, you get the idea. And these spirits, ha these spirits have real power, the power to harm you or the power to prosper you. Now, you should know that, according to some religious scholars, Buddha actually taught against putting one's faith into such things. Nonetheless, the Thai folks would worship Buddha and appease the spirits of the forest or the water or the land or your house or what have you, and they would do it through various prayers and making sacrificial offerings. And here's the crucial element to this. They did it in order to contend with the very practical issues of their life, like their harvest or their business or trying to get pregnant or what have you. In other words, they interacted with the spirits to garner aid so they can feel safe and secure and protected and empowered for what they faced or felt powerless about in life. Yes, Buddha takes care of the ultimate things, but the spirits, well, they have the power to take on their day-to-day -day more practical stuff and to literally save them from the harsh realities of life. So in terms of salvation for the Thai, it wasn't Buddha only, it was Buddha and. Buddha and the spirits, Buddha and making sacrifices, Buddha and wearing certain amulets or other talismans that promised power, power to people who often felt powerless. Now, we Christians may snicker at this, but do we not ascribe on some level salvific power, salvation power, to things besides Jesus in our day-to-day -day world? Power to make our lives meaningful or safe, secure, or even saved? Today we're going to reflect on a statement made by the Apostle Peter that on the one hand sounds axiomatic for us Christians. 
But on the other hand, given our modern context in America, it will be deeply challenging. Now, as Chris Pan and Pastor Dan mentioned over the last couple of weeks, our sermon series is taking us through what is called the lectionary calendar. If you want to learn more about the lectionary calendar, you can go to the website lectionarypage.net and you'll have all kinds of information there for you. Now, the passage from the lectionary that I'm going to focus on today comes out of Acts 4. Now, just to give you a little context, let me preface it by saying this. Now, at this time, the Christian church is still in its infant stages. Some of the apostles would still go to the temple to pray and to share the gospel with other people worshiping there. In Acts 3, the apostles Peter and John went to the temple to pray. And as they were moving up the stairs from the larger courts of the temple into that area where they offer sacrifices and, and where the, the prayers of the priests were offered, they came upon a crippled beggar, a man who, who had begged on those steps perhaps for decades. As that beggar asked for money, Peter famously said to him, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And with this, the man is healed. And he starts jumping around, and, and great crowds of folks that were gathering there for the afternoon prayers came running to see what happened. Now at this point, Peter pre preached this impromptu sermon to apparently thousands that thronged to come and see the miracle. Now by the time Peter finished, some several thousand people gave their lives to Christ. However, not everyone was so keen on the miracle. Some of the priests and a religious group called the Sadducees and the guards from the temple got really ticked off, so they threw Peter and John in jail. And this is where our reading comes in. Again, it's from Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 5, and it goes like this. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas and John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Well, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. I checked it. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where he says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which, by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I greatly appreciate these verses because they seem to capture in microcosm what often happens as we step up to do things for God. Sometimes, even as we see great spiritual gains, there's also great opposition. Now, in this section of Scripture, opposition comes from the biggest heavy hitters in the religious hierarchy of Israel. Now, before we get too harsh about these leaders who oppose Peter and John, try to see the incident from their point of view. I mean, think of it this way. Imagine how you might feel if members of some religious sect began to use our church building area, like the parking lot or something, to preach their own doctrines, doctrines which we saw as heretical. Not cool, right? Right. 
So you can imagine why these Jewish leaders got a bit upset. Now the chief question they asked of Peter and John was this, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now here's where it gets intense. Peter responds with answers he's got to know that's going to be very upsetting. Remember how he says in verses 10 and 11 where he says, Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, uh, which became the cap stone. I'll tell you, folks, that has to sting a little bit. But then he has this little piece. And this piece did not sit well with those who felt secure in their own power and in their own goodness to save them. Peter says this, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now at this juncture, perhaps many of you are saying yes and amen. And since we already believe that, why don't we just skip to the last song and end this service so I can go watch the Yankees on TV. But let's hang in there a second. Let's spend some time reflecting a little bit more about this passage. First of all, what did Peter mean by save or salvation in his little speech? Remember in verses eight and nine, Peter says, rulers and elders of our people, do you want to know how he was healed? The word healed there is the Greek word sozo, and it's the same word we translate as saved in verse 12. Now, why do we make this point? Because when Peter says what he says about Jesus being the one who saves, he is not simply implying Jesus only saves us from hell when we die, but the nature of his salvation is to impact, is to heal the here and now. Now, in this immediate context, it impacted and immediately impacted the, help, uh, the health of this crippled man. See, this here and now aspect of Christian salvation speaks not only about what I'm saved from when I die, but what I'm saved to here and now as I live. So yes, on the one hand, by giving my life to Jesus, I'm saved from the curse and condemnation of sin. I'm saved from an eternity without God after I die. And trust me, as I get older, you know, the, the louder my hallelujahs get about that kind of promise. But my point is this, my salvation doesn't just kick in when they put me in a pine box and throw dirt in my face. It is also to impact the here and now in every nook and cranny of my life. For example, I'm saved from the sinful attitudes and actions and value systems, etc., of our culture and of our world in the here and now. And I'm saved too. I'm saved too bring, to bring the purposes and power and values and the character of Christ to bear on our everyday world in every facet of life here and now. In other words, I'm saved to bring his value of people, to bear on the way we try to solve the problems of racism or sexism or poverty and violence in our culture. I'm saved to bring his character, to bear on the way I do business or run a staff meeting or treat my family and friends or coach a team sport. I'm saved to bring his, to bring his purposes, uh, to bear on the way I spend my money, how I make my money. I'm saved to bring his gospel to others and disciple and mentor them to become like Jesus. Now here is where I want to circle back to what I brought up in the beginning. 
See, when I blend the Savior with other saviors, like the way the Buddhists in Thailand blend their faith with other powers of animism, and when we get it wrong about what we're saved from and what we're saved to in the here and now, we Christians can actually add more hurt instead of healing, more suffering instead of adding more sozo to our culture. And I say that because, look, with every savior, there are purposes and power and values that come with them. Moreover, with every savior comes a list of their own sinners and saints, as well as their own sacrificial system and version of hell. Let me explain. Remember a few minutes ago, I mentioned that sometimes we Christians, we Christians can ascribe salvific power, salvation power, that is the power to make our lives meaningful and safe and secure and even saved to things besides Jesus in our day-to-day -day world. Perhaps when I said that, you may have felt a tinge of disagreement in your soul. But let us think about this for a minute. Think about the saving power we Christians sometimes ascribe to acquiring a great deal of wealth or hanging on to lasting beauty or finding the perfect job or getting married or getting kids, etc., etc. Do we not sometimes at least think to ourselves, oh, if I just had those things, my life would be safe, my life would be secure, my life would be saved, saved from emptiness and sadness and meaninglessness. Or to put it another way, if I didn't have wealth or success or got married, then my life would be awful. It would even be catastrophic. Let me point out real quick here something, now that I've mentioned this idea of being awful, that what we awfulize, it can, it can often reveal what we depend on to save us. You know, even pastors can have false saviors and awfulize things way too much. For example, pastors fight the constant temptation of making the size of their congregation the thing that will save them. Save them from the awful sense of failure or insignificance or obscurity or whatever. See, for me personally, I have often thought about how awful it would be to fail. To fail at ministry, to fail at leadership or preaching or teaching or counseling or whatever. Not just disappointing, but awful. So, my savior is not just some success, but it's constant success. And, I have, and when I have that kind of success, I know it will save me from low self-worth or a sense of shame or a sense of being a failure in life, etc. And so my offering, my sacrifice to this kind of savior is perfectionism. It's workaholism. It's sacrificing hours away from my family to appease that God, that savior of success. That way I can avoid hell, the hell of failure. So as you see, instead of my sense of worth and, and the deliverance of, from shame coming from Christ and what he thinks of me and what he did for me, that is from his absolute and unchanging truth about me, my sense of worth or deliverance from shame is coming from something that is so erratic, unstable, and ultimately oppressive. Can anyone relate to having the wrong kind of savior? Now on a larger scale, doesn't it seem by what we watch or read in the news these days that we Christians sometimes ascribe salvific power to things like ideologies or politi 
political parties to save our country. Things like critical theory or identity politics or conservatism or liberalism, etc. And if I can push the envelope a little more, do we not also sometimes ascribe or attribute salvific power to a country? You know, recently I read an article about how, how over the centuries in our culture, we have heard great leaders talk about how America is, quote, the last best hope of Earth. In his first inaugural address in 1801, Thomas Jefferson lifted up the American, uh, America's Republican form of government and he called it the world's best hope. Speaking in 1862, Abraham Lincoln movingly declared, we shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. Ronald Reagan famously revived the theme in 1964 when he said, you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We will preserve our children this, the last best hope of humanity on earth, or we will sentence them to the first step into a thousand years of darkness. It's pretty dramatic. On the campaign trail in 2008, Barack Obama reiterated this same thing by saying, I am absolutely certain that generations from now we will be able to look back and tell our children that this, this was the moment when we secured our nation and restored our image as, wait for it, the last best hope on earth. Look, I get it. This is great political theater. And if I can be totally honest with you, when I hit my patriotic heart, when it hears that, I love it. But as far as biblical theology goes, as far as salvation goes, I'm not quite sure that's what the Gospels had to say. Amen? I mean, think about it. If it were true, and if we happen to falter as a nation, what happens to our Christian hope for the future of the world? Does it remain strong because Jesus is still Lord? Or does our hope take a huge blow because we have looked to another Savior? My brothers and sisters, our salvation as a people is not Jesus and, but Jesus only. It's not Jesus and a specific country. It's not Jesus and a certain political party. It's not Jesus and a cer certain social ideology. It's Jesus only. Yes, countries can help. Political parties can help. Ideologies can help. But they can never save. Or to put it another way, our ultimate solution is not who is occupying 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but who is occupying our souls. As one writer bluntly put it, salvation is not coming on Air Force One. Look, one reason I'm really banging on this drum is because when we Christians are so committed to having our side or our, or our ideas gain power, it can create wars and fears and enemies that God is not creating. For example, over the years, politicians and pundits and even pastors love to use the phrase, a war on fill in the blank a war on women, a war on traditional values, a war on the LGBTQ community, a war on people of faith, a war on people from New Jersey. You get the idea. It's really crazy. Now, the, the, the reason this is concerning for me is because war is a very extreme term. And when we put issues in extreme terms, we evoke extreme responses and extreme fears. 
Look, I get why the media wants to do this, because they need to sell their TV time and shows and papers and magazines and podcasts, etc. And you know what? Fear sells big time. But why we Christians join the chorus of fear making instead of hope making is a bit mystifying to me. Moreover, fear and false saviors easily create enemies where God has none. And folks, when our fears have created a list of enemies that is longer than God's list, we will never end up with God's best for our culture. As Christian writer Ed Stetzer put it, you cannot war with people and show the love of Jesus. And you can't be both outraged and on mission. How often are people, pastors included, trying to convince the populace that members of that group pose an existential threat to our society. It's common nowadays, isn't it, to hear that X is the biggest threat to the church in our lifetime, be it social justice or sexism, conservatism, feminism, fundamentalism, postmodernism, ismismism. Think of all the emails and articles and videos that we're encouraged to look at that loudly proclaim that Christianity is under siege. Look, folks, I have ministered in countries where Christians were truly under siege. And you know what? We are a long way from that. Look, I agree, some ideas out there can be really harmful to our society and to the church. For example, I think the Equality Act that is before the Senate now, as it currently stands, could have a profound negative effect on Christian groups and schools and churches. Now, I'm not going to go into the specifics of this act, but I bring it up to say this. If I frame the Equality Act as Christianity under siege or as another war on Christians, instead of simply saying it's really bad public policy, what starts to happen? Well, fear goes up, enemy lists get longer, and other saviors that can give us power start to be an attractive solution. But as a Christian man, my battle is not against flesh and blood. And I don't have to deify my side and demonize the other because I see people through my Savior. And because I do that, I know that those who support my view aren't inherently good. And those who oppose it aren't inherently evil, nor are they my enemies. As Paul reminds us quite vividly in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he says this, For our struggle... Our battle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As I said before, other saviors always come with their own version of who to demonize and who to deify, who are the sinners and who are the saints. And when we forget that we too are sinners, loved and saved by grace every minute of every day, we can move in a very self-righteous direction and risk flying off course, biblically speaking. And this is why, as, as we consider sinners and saints, we must remember what, what, what writer and Christian Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote many years ago. The line between good and evil runs down the middle of every person's heart. And because it does, it means we all need saving and we all stand together on level ground before the cross of Christ. Again, as writer Ed Stetzer put it, if the disease is sin, 
then the remedy is found at the cross. Not in ideologies, not in political people or in political parties, not in my wealth, my education, my marital status, my anything. And that kind of reality gives me hope, even in the most distressing times, because it tells me that the remedy for our distress is always within reach. Let me give you a real-life example of what I mean. Like all of you, I was stunned and saddened and angry over the mob violence on January 6th in Washington, D.C. Now, I know there were other riots in other parts of the country that were going on that were also very violent, very disturbing, and dead wrong. But what floored me most about the Washington riots was, was all the Christian verbiage and symbols and prayers that were used to, to energize and motivate and maybe even sanctify those events. The temptation of my heart at that time was to vilify and demonize a whole list of folks whom I thought were responsible for leading our country to that point. However, a couple of days later, while praying about this, for some reason, the words which Jesus spoke to Peter came to mind. Remember when Peter first stated that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded to him and said this, Now I say to you that you are Peter. Peter means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And now check this out. And the, all the powers of hell will not prevail against it. In that moment, and in light of that kind of promise and power, the anger in my heart started to dissipate and hope started to arise. You see, I realize that as a Christian, I don't need to panic or participate in rage because God's church and his kingdom are not in danger. Human kingdoms may be, but not God's. God's church will prevail. And let me be really clear about this. God doesn't eventually prevail. He is, in this very moment, prevailing. Because he is not a savior of an ordinary kind who can rise and fall with this or that. But he is the savior that stands forever. And this is why I can maintain hope. Not some saccharine version of optimism, but real hope in times like ours with all its ideological battles and madness. So I ask you, in the face of all that's going on, can you see God's work prevailing? Or are you looking to other saviors to come to the rescue and have those other saviors in your heart created enemies where God has done? Now look, please don't get me wrong. I'm all for being fully engaged with the political process and in public dialogue, and I believe that Christians should run for office. I'm all for going out and protesting or writing our congressional people. I'm all for giving voice to our concerns in the public square, but I am of no illusion that these things will ultimately save us. For as Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must, not can be or might be, by which we must be saved. Is that your mindset today? Is that the basis of your hope for the future? Look, as I close, may I challenge you with this, to spend, spend some time this week reflecting with all the honesty you can about two things. One is this. Reflect on what do you fear or what do you awfulize? 
And how do those vulnerable feelings of fear and awfulizing, those feelings of powerlessness, create a desire to look for false saviors? The second thing is this. Ponder this week, what am I really saved from and what am I saved to? What am I saved to live out here and now? Name these things, share these things, pray these things uh, uh, with other people, but especially live these things. So, what is God saying to you? Is there some work to be done in your soul, in your outlook towards others, or toward the problems of our day? You know, one Savior that I haven't mentioned yet, that might be the biggest obstacle to real salvation for our lives, is putting faith in our own goodness. The belief that God must save me because I'm living such a good life. As I said a moment ago, the line between good and evil runs down the heart of every human being, yours included. And that doesn't disappear because you help old ladies across the street or you volunteer at the animal shelter. That can only be undone when we put our faith in the eternal and unshakable love and grace of God. If you have never done this before, will you consider giving your life to Jesus today? Now, in a moment, I will pray a simple prayer that you can repeat along with me. So let's all kind of take a moment to be still and allow God to speak to our hearts. Just close your eyes for a second. Close your eyes, settle your hearts, and take a deep breath. What is God saying to you? Lord, your word is clear. There is only one Savior, and it's not our personal goodness. It's not our ideologies. It's not our country. It's not in anything this world can offer. If we have looked for salvation in some other name, Lord, we repent of that and seek your forgiveness. Lord, for those of us who, who need to experience your healing for our souls and hope for our days, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would fill them with a sense of your love and, and, and your grace in this very moment. Help them, Lord, to experience physical, emotional, or relational healing that they need in this hour. Now, for those of you who want to give your life fully to Jesus today, just follow me in this simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess the emptiness of my life without you. Forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Thank you for your deep love for me. And as best as I know how, I commit my life to you. Come and fill me with your spirit today. In your gracious and loving name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. All right, for those who prayed for the first time to give your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to hit the raise the hand button in the chat area. When you click on that, a prayer team member can, uh, will connect with you right now in a private chat window. Because we want to celebrate with you, and we also want to pray with you to affirm this super important decision you made for your life. And we have more information to give you that will help you in your new walk with Jesus. So just hit that button. 
Well, before I give the blessing, let me say thanks again to all of you for joining us today. We are so glad that you worship with us. And again, if you have given your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to hit that raised hand button in the chat area. And if any of you still want prayer before you leave this service, just hit the prayer button. And remember, if you want to extend the conversation about what we've sung about, prayed about, learned about today, then join a connect group right after this service. Just hit that link in the chat area and you'll be taken right into that forum. And if you're new to this community, it is a great way to get to meet other people. So before we go, please receive this blessing. May the one true Savior fill your soul with a sense of His peace and strength in the face of all that seems overwhelming. And may He anoint you through the power of His Spirit to demonstrate in all that you do that Christ is our greatest hope to heal our world. For from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time. Aloha. Those are challenging words, but we are all susceptible to putting other things before the one and only entity that can offer us true salvation, true healing. And that entity, of course, is Jesus Christ. If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Prez website fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. As you may have heard Jenny say, in-person worship has resumed, but in limited capacity. If you'd like to participate, please sign up through the website. In the meantime, we continue to stream the entire service online on the church websites, Sunday morning at 8, 9.30, 11, 11, and Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. The websites are fpchawaii.org and thevinehawaii.org. Be sure to check your email, too, for links to sermons, church news and updates, daily devotionals, and registration for our in-person worship. If you have any questions or needs, you can reach the church through the website or just call 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you, stay safe, and thank you for listening. This sermon podcast is copyright 2021 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu.